0: A changing environment with huge amounts of uncertainty has become the norm, but have leadership styles adjusted to suit the context that they are now operating within? My guest this week has witnessed and been part of an industry-wide change that has created huge uncertainty for all stakeholders. And he has found that focusing on purpose and why we're here brings out the best people and ideas. You'd think that this would be fairly obvious and more commonplace. But when faced with uncertainty, often the human mind tries to cling to what is already known and tries to control people and ideas. I'm Julia Rebholz. Welcome to Generative Leaders. I guess I'm I'm
1: sort of have a little bit of a history. It goes back a little way. Um, I've done a few things in my time. Um, Back in history, I'm a a physicist from an academic point of view. I'm an accountant by training, but by experience, um, I'm a a power industry operator uh, who's constructed and run power generating units of all different sorts, Um, sort of coal power stations, gas power stations, and in the last 10 years, renewable power stations. So that's on and offshore wind farms and biomass farms, and also um, networks, so interconnectors and those sort of things.
0: Thank you, Simon. So, what does generative leadership mean to you?
1: Ge- generative leadership is leadership which is driven through purpose. So, rather than leadership driven through objective, so leadership by objective is is by setting a clear outcome be that a target measured by money or by specific outcome and delivery whereby you say to everyone in a team this is what's important and this is what we're going to achieve and that's what success is. Generative leadership is not that, it is by purpose which is to explain in a broader sense why we're here. We're here for a reason of existence or of to achieve something broader and greater than any individual specific target. And, and in doing that, what it doesn't do is deliver short-term, immediate results. But what it does do is give everybody the opportunity to contribute in the way that's best for them to a broader, big-picture delivery. And, and, and why that's so significant is, in a world of change... In a world of uncertainty, where something is not clear, generative leadership is the strongest way in which to manage a business or manage an activity. And I had a specific example of that. And it's when I worked at uh, Centrica and uh, ran the power business. Um, and we, we had the gas-fired power business, which is eight, eight gas-fired power uh, units. And, and the team there, had been there for a long time, and it's a very traditional business. It's a very industrial business, which is sort of full of engineers, really, and project managers, and it's a very structured business. And, and in this, it's, you know, historically, if you were called, you fired up your, your, your um, generator and you generated power for the country and you ran for a while and then you shut down when you weren't needed. And, and it, it's sort of almost militaristic in a way and, and very structured. And so it was simple. You, you were, your target was to be available when you were needed and make sure your power station operated appropriately. It's a very engineering, maintenance-orientated, large capital spend to keep things running properly. And therefore, it's a very, it was a very directive business. It was a very command and control business, sort of historically. Um, during the time that I was um, in charge of that business, running that business, um, the the economics of the business changed and actually the power stations weren't needed and they were unprofitable and it, the whole question about whether these business had a future was called into uh, sort of was raised and the issue there was that we had about 14 sort of senior leaders and then 600 people in total and I, and I had to kind of work out with my senior team how do I deal with that? What do we do with this group of people who are used to be told exactly what to do and how to operate in a world where we had a really uncertain future about whether we'd even be operating in a year or two's time? And, and what sort of model do you use and how do you sort of motivate people? And, and the way we sort of concluded that the way to do it is we brought everyone together. We brought the 40 leaders together and we said, I'm just going to tell you the truth here. I don't know what the future looks like. I don't know whether we're going to be in business in a couple of years' time, what I do need you all to do is to operate our business really safely, properly, and to provide motivation to our team to do the job the best they can and help them through what's going to be a very, very difficult time. And to really sort of give them the ownership of that in the way that was best for them, rather than be very directive in, in, in that. And it was a kind of a bit of a risk, really, because it hadn't happened that way before. Previously, everybody had just been given their targets and then sort of driven in a very directive way. And, and we ran that for about 18 months in that way. And it resulted in a number of those, um, we ended up with a number of those stations being closed and the residual of them being sold. So it did, sort of the business ended. The thing I'm really, really proud about is the performance of the business from a operational and safety point of view in that remaining 18 months was the best it had ever been across the life of that portfolio and, and i and i like to think i can't prove but i like to think it's because we gave the responsibility and the ownership of leadership to that group in that way and that's my demonstration of generative leadership
0: brilliant thank you simon and you know, it, it's, so, it's so simple, isn't it, when you kind of boil it down to the key components that you shared there is you told people the truth, you gave them ownership over what they could do with that truth, um, and then you created the space for them to perform at their, their best. It's kind of common sense, really, isn't it? Well, well so it,
1: there's always an argument, isn't there, about, about being positive, like always giving the positive side of the world not being pessimistic and saying we're doomed which is kind of was you know there was an uncertainty and we might be doomed and and if you consider losing your job you know being a kind of doomed thing you've got to be careful not to be that but equally you don't want to be sort of stupidly positively marketing and everything's going to be great the world's lovely i'm going to hide sort of bad news and treat you like a child and and so you know where do you draw the line that's the the challenge but, you know, I agree with the way you put that. You know, these are adults. You know, everybody's, nobody's stupid. You need to treat people properly and, and, and grown up and say, you know, everyone's got leadership in them. Just give them the opportunity to show it.
0: And and to me, I guess that's that's what generative leadership means to me is kind of recognising that everybody has leadership in them and a leader's job is to help somebody see that in themselves and then give them the space to draw it out um, such that they can see their own leadership in action?
1: It's, it's, there's this thing called, isn't it, situational leadership, I think I've read. Um, and it's important to recognise that there are some circumstances where it's not appropriate, um, where you need to be far more directive. And, and the, the model I have, you know, the, the theoretical model I have in my head is if you're in a room and it's burning, you don't want to sit there and say to everybody, you know, have a big debate about what's the most, you know, what's the way of doing this thing. You want to get everybody out in a very directive way. You, you, you've got to choose, you know, the right the right model for the right moment. But but in a broader leadership sense, you know, giving people the scope to use the brains that everybody's had, everybody has, is for sure the best way to do things.
0: Yeah, and it's, I mean, you know, I, I don't mean to be glib, but, you know, sometimes when you're sitting in a burning building... It's not always the leader that says it's burning. We need to leave.
1: <laughs> it's true. It's true. It, it, it's also um, actually, yeah. Different leaders have different skills, don't they? Um, and the, you know, some leaders are not the ones that are um, the immediate action people. The ones who are good in the firefight. You know, certain leaders are good in a firefight. Others are awful in a firefight. Um, and you really wouldn't put them on the, you know, on the front line. You want to put them way back. You want to put them in the strategy box and let them do the big deep thinking for the next five years, but not for the next 20 minutes.
0: And and so how would you say that you, how you've got to know your own leadership and what you're good at and, what, you know, where you best thrive and how you would describe that for other people?
1: I, I think I'm going to, ha- I'm going to have to go back a little bit and tell you something that still shocks and amuses me from a long time ago, from about the age of 35, when at that age I I really had no idea about the concept of leadership Or, or even more basic than that. I didn't even really appreciate that people had different thinking styles and I didn't understand that information was received and translated differently by different people. And I was, I, was, um, I was so pleased, although I didn't think it at the time, to be put on a, um, a leadership development course where I went through some real basic psychometrics and understanding to find out that just because I understood something in the way it was coming to me didn't mean that other people did understand it. And even if they did, it didn't mean they'd react in the same way that I did. And it was like it was like a revelation to me. It was like a kind of road, for, road to Damascus kind of moment for me when that happened. And it was the start of the leadership journey. Because prior to that, I was, a, I think, a very capable accountant who, as my coach described to me at the time, would always be sitting in the corner, sort of being valued by someone who's to cover their backs, but I would never be anything more because I didn't even understand how really people operated. Um, and that and that was the start. That was the start. From that, I started to get a bit more experience, a bit more understanding, and uh, I, I I started to have sort of teams around me. Initially, professional accounting teams, and that I have to say, in, on reflection, is very very easy. When you've got if you're a professional and you've got other professionals working for you, it's broadly easy to manage those. I mean, it's a little bit tricky, but not really. Um, and but the first time I moved into become an operational. Uh, manager and that's with people who are really variable in their competence level in their experience level and also in their motivations why they come to work that's where it really you know that's where I really started to learn about leadership Um, and having to vary what I thought was motivational with what motivated those people and what have I found out I'm going to link it back really quite quickly to generative leadership I think I've really found out that I'm not good in a firefight I've I've really found out that there are certain things that I'm quite good at there's there's a couple of things I'm really quite good at and there are so many things I'm poor at and the one of the things I'm good at is recognizing what I'm quite poor at (laughs) and and because of that One of the earliest things I do whenever I've managed to get a job is to look to get people around me to help compensate for my weaknesses. Um, And I've been mediumly successful at that because I know if I don't do that, I will fail. I'm quite structured. I'm quite organised and structured. Um, And I can I sort of one of the things I'm quite good at is kind of looking forward and saying, how's that going to work and how's that all going to fit together? And if I can't see that clearly, I'm, I'm disturbed and I kind of stay on it until I can see the way and, the, and, and, the, and it clear. And that's quite helpful when you're trying to do a sort of two, three, four, five year plan. But it is not very helpful if you're in the, bo- in, in the, burning, in the burning moment. So I need someone around me who can deal with the immediate sort of challenge. I'm also, I, I'm not the person who can really do the, the inspiring speech in the moment. So I need someone. If I've got a, a reasonable sized team around me, I need someone who's the person who can inspire others. The, the, the one who can stand up the front and say, you know, the, the the kind of it's time to charge. Come on, everybody, let's go. And, and I really need someone on my team who can help help do that for me. Um, and I'm quite good at you know I'm quite good at finding that person and at saying, will you you know can you will you will you be my right hand person to help me do that and please go and and giving them the space to do that. I can be a bit arsy at times. But what I'm not is I'm really not sort of directive and I'm really not alpha male. And I, and I struggle. I, I can just about do it when I have to. But I struggle if I'm in a, an environment that pushes me to do that. And I equally, I equally struggle if I'm on the receiving end of that. It's been kind of when it's not worked well is when I've been on the recipient end of sort of alpha male kind of leadership styles I've kind of, I've, I've survived it for a year or two and then had to move on because it's just not quite me.
0: <laughs> and how have you gone about learning these dimensions? Because, you know, we have a view of ourselves and um, and what we like, what we don't like. Um, but other people's views of us are quite different um, and can give us other information into windows of ourselves that we just don't see. Um, so how how would you kind of suggest other people who are, you know, starting off in their leadership journey or, you know, a kind of early on or midway through um, that they start to, to have that understanding of themselves.
1: This is a really hard thing. I think to do, you have to ask people and you have to ask people to give you an honest answer, which means you have to ask people that you have a reasonable confidence can give you an honest answer. And that's really hard because quite a few people will give you an answer, but th- they will temper it with the relationship they have with you. And, and that's really quite complex. But that's what you have to do. Um, I, I went through at least four, of, yeah, probably four times 360 feedback sessions in different businesses. And they were structured. Um, and, you know, the first time was so uncomfortable. Boy, was that uncomfortable. And, and I didn't recognize what I was being told at all. And I thought I was just being persecuted. and and maybe even managed out of the business Um, and it took me two or three goes before I started going well maybe if enough people are telling me that maybe there's something in it then uh, to going yeah actually that's true and it's me that's got the problem it's the you know it's a perception thing that I've got a blank spot on but but you need that and and you have to ask for it and you have to encourage other people to to be honest that's the way either formally or informally to go about asking people for it. Other than the harsh way where you find that things don't happen in the way that you thought they were going to happen, or you're not getting the business that you thought sort of seemed to be going your way if you're trying to sell business, or you're not getting promoted when you thought, you know, it was a dead cert you were going to get promoted. Because they are the ways you're getting feedback that tell you you're not as, you know, things aren't operating the way you were. But they're the harsh moments that make you feel really bad. Before that, it's by asking people feedback as to how and why you're operating the way you are.
0: Having similarly been through that uh, feedback process and, um, you know, the first time that you go through it, we were having, I was having a discussion last night about, you know, the merits of anonymized feedback versus direct feedback and people's ability to be honest when it's direct feedback, because they are tempering with that relationship. But when it's anonymized feedback, people get obsessed with, well, who was it that gave me that feedback?
1: <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's hurt, it comes across as hurtful, doesn't it? It can be hurtful if you're if you're a sensitive soul as I am, and I think many of us are. Partly you think, well, it's not true, and partly you think, well, why didn't you? Why, why do you have to wait to be asked that? Why didn't you just tell me that anyway? And. um you know why do you te- why why is it so harsh? <laughs> why did you tell me that in a nice way? And, and there are all these things you know they're kind of human emotions that bubble up. Um, you you and I have had this conversation about. I I spent three years in Switzerland, and the Swiss don't have the same UK sensitivity about giving feedback. It's far more just simple logical, and it's not harsh. It's just factual. And I initially that I, I tell you this story. It's, it's um. Uh, two months in, um, in, in, my, in my job in Switzerland, which was for a, a, a private equity company, my boss said to me in front of about 20 colleagues, um, he said, uh, just going around the table of a, of a feedback, a sort of weekly catch up, he said, Oh, and Simon, the, the thing that you did then, that was really bad, wasn't it? And it just kind of stopped. <laughs> I looked at him and I said, Sorry? He said, you know what you did then, that was really poor. That was just really poor. Let's just agree it's really poor. And then he just moved on. And, and I was sort of devastated because I'd never had such instant, clear, sharp feedback from in, in a group that I hardly knew. And, uh, and I came to realize there was nothing personal about it. It wasn't like being nasty or anything. He was just being factual in the way he'd saw it. And that. I came to become, I think, stronger from that experience in Switzerland because I now give that feedback, and I try and be careful in the UK now particularly, but I give it in a far clearer way like that. And, it, and, and once, you, once you do that, it comes very fast and easier and quicker and more efficient. If somebody says something like that, you go, OK, I'm, I, I don't take offence of it at all. I see that's the way you see it, so I only need to absorb it and I can work with it. But in the UK particularly, we struggle with that um i think in the u.s actually we I, you know my experience of work in the u.s which is reasonable it's a very similar thing it's difficult to deal with feedback like that and you have to be far more sensitive with it
0: yeah and i think it comes back to what you said earlier of you know we're just not taught that people think differently to us and that they're going to have a different perspective and a different um opinion and i, I remember uh, early on in 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 my career and i was working in the us and i actually had a an ex military boss and he was incredibly direct with his feedback and none of it was personal but for the for about the first 6 weeks i took it really personally you know he's saying i'm doing a bad job i'm not competent i'm not this i'm not that i'm not the other but i don't remember what it was but i just had this moment of realizing no we we can make this better collectively and the more i took it in that spirit of you know how how does this input make this product better or this um you know this presentation that we were doing or this strategy that we were doing how does it make it better and then when i started to then kind of almost see that for myself as well like somebody giving me feedback is saying they care about me enough to Want to help me be better, then you know I should listen and stop and not take it personally. But I think there's this barrier of just you know, it's that kind of I'm not good enough, you don't like me narrative that gets in the way of no, 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 this is about how how do we learn, how do we get better. I I
1: mean, that's the key thing is that you don't like me, and and, and you, if, if you can move that, you don't, or you like me, or you don't like me, if you totally disconnect that. Then, then you're in the winning, then you're in the winning place, which has nothing to do with liking or disliking it. Factually, like, I like you, what you did there. That's good. Do more of that. You need to do more of this because what you did there didn't work. And, and that, that's that's the way to do it. I, actually, I love that model. I, I, do, it, I do it often now when, I, when we have meetings and I'm, I'm sort of running meetings. I'll say, you know, at the end of the meeting, let's do a what worked well. Let's have more of it. And what will we do differently next time? And and we'll write it down, and then we'll review it next time at the next meeting. And it's quite simple, and it's quite impersonal, but it's very actionable. And you can do it on a personal level, or you can do it on a collective level. And it, it's kind of it helps. It it really helps improve stuff personally and and collectively. Yeah,
0: no, exactly. And my 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 slight tweak to that that I do on a regular basis is I say, what did I really, what did we really like about what we just did, and what would make it even better next time. Because I think that if you kind of start with what you liked, it takes us out of kind of going. Oh, I didn't like that. I didn't like that. That was shit. That 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 you know, and kind of picking it apart. <laughs> but you know, that's that's how human beings are designed. You know, we are problem-solving machines, and so we tend to focus on all of the negative and disregard any of the things that went well.
1: Except for those marketeers. You, c- certain people have this innate marketeering about them. And I've come across quite a few of them. And I think they are it's an amazing skill to have where they're just always positive and it's always gonna be great. Whatever they do is always gonna be great you know they need they need control around them but it's just awesome to be around those people and you you, you just love to be around them because they always carry you forward but there are a few and far between i think
0: well one thing i did want to touch on simon is you know you started your career in the fossil fuel industry um and you you had a realization at some point that you wanted to switch away from that can you can you talk about that what that was like for you what happened
1: so i can but it, it's do you know it's it's a partly it's not it wasn't within my control as in as in it sort of morphed as much as I made a deliberate decision, and I, and I want to tell you that because I I don't want to come across like an eco warrior uh, whilst I kind of think I am substantially there now, I don't I I don't want to come across like that and in fact I, I want to tell you this alternative story first which is I was I was running to coal power stations and a gas fire power station for EDF, which collectively produced about 6% of the UK's uh, electricity. And, uh, and I used to get quite some grief from sort of people locally when I'd get home. And they'd say, you know, you're running these coal power stations, you're burning coal. Isn't that really bad for the world? And, and and I sort of, it's not very nice when you do a job and then people come and say you're doing it, you know, that's bad what you do.
0: You were taking it personally, Simon. Well,
1: I was taking it personally. I was because I do take these things personally. And and I'd you know, sit in the pub and I kind of, after a while, I, initially I tried to defend myself inappropriately, I think. And and I eventually I got to this point and I'd say, I am, you know, I am burning coal and it's putting CO2 in the air. And it's pretty clear that that's... Um, helping climate change which is heading for a disaster for the human race so yes do you want me to turn the coal stations off is the question I'd ask and they'd look at me and I'd say because that will mean that the lights will go out in the pub and we won't be able to have the beer here and that's you know if, if that's what you want that's fine but what what I don't want you to do is put the like the onus on me that it's I'm the problem when you're the consumer, and oh yeah, it's all my problem. And and that's the way I kind of defend myself in those days. I'm, I'm talking 20 years ago now. And I'm just telling you that because, you know, if I did that today, I think I would be at the bad end of the scale and seen as a very evil person. That was then. So, so I joined Centrica and we had a small renewables fleet and we had a gas-fired power station fleet. And the renewables grew and the gas station fleet, you know, shut down. And so it, it wasn't my deliberate decision to do that. But I just sort of morphed into doing more and more renewables. And, and it just became clear to me as I got more, more knowledgeable about the argument. It became clear to me that the, the arguments about zero CO2 generation versus the arguments about generation that delivers you know, CO2 into the environment. It's so clear that I cannot justify, I just cannot justify supporting generation, that, fossil fuel generation anymore in things that I do. Uh, it, it's just wrong, um, and so you know. For the rest of my Centrica career, it was it was renewables, and then since then, I joined uh, an infrastructure um, investment company in, in Switzerland, and and it was all clean fuel, and and then ever since then, I've, I've got a pu- uh, plural career, and you know, it's it's all non fossil fuel, it, it's all renewables, um, and and so this is why I'm careful. I'm not saying I'm a big eco warrior. It's just it's taken time to go through and demonstrate that I know we need power we need our power for our way of life I'm really clear now that it needs to be clean power um, and and not fossil fuel generated power if the human race has a a possibility of a survival and uh, you know I have two sons you know I, I will be gone I suspect before the disaster happens I have two sons I'm more concerned about you know, they they may not, they may still be here when it happens. So as much as I can make a contribution to it, I wish to.
0: And that's, that's really great, Simon. And thank you for, for sharing that. And, you know, what's, what's really interesting for us to kind of maybe explore a little bit is, you've been on that journey as an executive in a large energy firm, uh, you know, you've come to that conclusion, but like you said, it took time. And we've got, You know, we've got a whole industry that's now lobbying against a transition away from fossil fuels. We've just seen what's come out in COP28. It's a bit of a damp squib for people wanting to protect their own financial security over the long term success of the human race. How do you think we influence these people to stop investing in fossil fuels to make that transition in a much faster way than maybe the 20 years it took you.
1: I had the, a, a more very specific opposite thought the other day. I do one of those quizzes every morning, uh, like the word quizzes and the geography quizzes. There's one called tradle. I don't know if you've come across this one, but what you do is you, you give given facts about exports. Uh, you're given a shape of a country and it's exports and you have to guess what country it is. And this country, I think it was about 48% of it is exporting either petroleum products or gas, gaseous products. 48% of it is is export. Uh, and it, it was one of the African countries. I, I, I won't mention which one. And I sat there and thought, if you're, if you're that country and you're involved in the fossil fuel discussion and the, and the discussion is, we want to end all of that. And you're talking about almost half of your your, your exports going to zero. That's such a significant immediate reduction in your economic capability. Unless you're right there, right now, going to talk about how you're doing some amazing transition planning in the short term, you're going to fight like hell, probably, because your ability to see the long term is not going to, you know, you're not going to see that compared to surviving in the next two or three years. And it just really highlighted more than ever to me the challenge that we've got. Uh, what, what's your, what's your um, you know, what's the answer? You know, I don't really know. I don't, I don't know. When, when I see the fires, when I see the floods, when I've seen even locally, we had floods last year. And when I see the houses being flooded, I sit there and think, when the water's at the door, I remember what I should really be doing. But when they're not there, and it's not. I'm not. It's not in my face. I kind of sort of forget it, and, and I guess it needs to be as as almost emotionally and personally impacting to make that judgment. Because talking about twenty and thirty years down the line is just too far away. I think for most people to be impacted in their decision making, and that sounds sad and short my short, short term, but I think that's the truth of the human race. So something needs to happen to make it feel more immediate than that that is happening. But I I don't know. It's a tough one, Juliet, and I don't know the answer no,
0: to No, it is it is really tough and, you know, I, I sort of my, my sort of feeling on it is that the only way it will change is if we stop putting the money in to fuel it literally. And, you know, obviously you're working in private equity. I'm working in private equity you know, we're both trying to get that money to move in a different direction. And the more money that starts moving in that different direction, you know, accepting that our economic system isn't going to change much overnight. <laughs> it sort of feels like, you know, if you stop giving the money to actually burn the fuel, then perhaps that um, that actually does something. But it, you know, it's, it requires a, a mindset change, from a banking system perspective, from a government perspective to, you know, stop subsidising all of these things that will eventually, potentially kill off the human race.
1: I, to, I agree with you. And incrementally, it is happening, isn't it? But it feels like such a slow process. I, I, know, I know a few people that went to COP28 this year, and they were all a little bit excited about it. And I was quietly thinking, I'd be bored senseless. I'd be bored, censored to sit there in you know these different groups, and they're going to be going blah blah blah. And then I thought, am I am I Greta? Am I am I starting to become a Greta? Because because I can understand her going, what's the point? You know, what's the point in two weeks of people all going, you know, chatting away, and and actually at the end of it you go, yeah yeah, you know, we've made a really marginal minor change, but we'll all talk about it like it's a really big thing, and I it will happen at that rate, but. Will it happen before it's all too late? You know, it's a real questionable thing at that speed. I suppose if a really major country has a huge um, climate event, then we'll wake up, won't we? We will all wake up.
0: I don't know. I mean, you know, we've got we've had the war in Ukraine. We don't hear about that anymore. Now we've got the war in in Israel that is keeping all of the all of the headlines. But at the same time, you know, it's sort of back to your to your earlier point of sitting in the pub and saying, you know, do we want all of this turned off? And I was watching the the movie on Netflix. I don't know if you've seen it, calling called Leave the World Behind, which is all about a cyber attack. And you know, it was it was kind of the end of it you were sort of left going well maybe we've already all, all left the world behind because we're so interested in these fictional characters and distractions rather than each other and having that connection that you know maybe mother nature is just saying i'm just going to eradicate these parasites because they're destroying it and they don't really care
1: and they don't care and they don't care i'm, I'm rather partial to the film the day after tomorrow which came out about 20 years ago which, which shows a huge shift in climate. And the whole of the Northern Hemisphere gets frozen out, your new ice age. So it destroys the US and it destroys Northern Europe. And, uh, and, and, and the, the residual of the US, it's a US film, the residual of the US people survive have to sort of traipse down to Mexico and are a beholden to the Mexicans who kindly let them move in. And, um, and it just shows you a rewriting of the world order. And, and I, what I like about that is it just starts to show you the fundamental change that could take place if we're not careful it's quite helpful to watch that i don't know if you've seen that it's helpful to watch that because it sort of shows you the scale of what could happen but still that doesn't really make much difference and i remember talking i was in um, i was in edf at the time and i remember talking to a couple of people about that i said yeah it's just fiction you know at the times yeah it's just a piece of hollywood and and i uh, you know that's that's what we that's the challenge
0: yeah, and, and, and maybe it is this movement, you know, I mean, you and I both saw the movement in Centrica of 30,000 people kind of going, yeah, we don't want to do this anymore. We want to do renewables and, and kind of voting with their feet, both as employees staying and saying this is what we're interested in and and uh, with their, you know, feet in, I don't want to work for a company that does these things anymore when decisions go in in a different way. so. Well, Simon, thank you so much for having this conversation. And um, it's been provocative, uh, to say the least. (laughs) So I'm hoping that the listeners will um, take something out of this. Um, You said earlier you're in a plural career. Um, If people want to get hold of you, are interested in you um, talking to them about their business, how can they get hold of you?
1: Probably LinkedIn's the best.
0: Fantastic. And is there any final thoughts that you'd like to share with with the listeners any advice that you might have
1: uh, I think of all the leadership things uh, the, the 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 most important thing is to keep things really short. I love the Stephen Covey seven habits of the most in, most influential and important people, and the one I love the most is seek first to understand and then to be understood
0: wonderful well thank you Simon, as always and um Look forward to our next conversation.
1: Julia, thank you very much.
0: It was such a fascinating conversation with Simon and so much that I took away from it. The first thing that really stayed with me was having a clarity of purpose in your leadership. Why are we here? What are we trying to do together? and then creating space for every individual to contribute their unique skills, experience, ideas to that bigger picture, rather than focusing on individual objectives and targets. I wonder what would happen if we did more of that. The second piece was really understanding other people's thinking styles and that they're likely to be very different from yours. This has been one of my biggest learnings like Simon over my career is how something can just look so obvious to you and completely crazy to someone else looking at the same thing at the same time. It's fascinating. The third area was giving and receiving feedback. There can be discomfort in giving people feedback and receiving feedback. And there's been times in my career when people have given me feedback that was really, really uncomfortable. And I've grown the most from that feedback when I was willing to sit with it long enough for the discomfort to pass and to see that someone cared about me enough to help me grow. And if you can start seeing that more and more, then the discomfort tends to fall away much more quickly. And then the last piece that I would leave you with is what do you think about fossil fuels and the challenge of moving to alternative energy solutions and humanity's ability to do that? It's a big question with not a lot of answers, and something that we all need to grapple with. Thank you for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please do go ahead and share it with others. You can do that at generativeleaders.co or on any of the podcast platforms that you listen to. I look forward to seeing you next time on Generative Leaders.